welcome to uh, the Little Breakfast podcast, and we are back together uh, to explore uh, ministry and thinking about why ministry matters. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, on this episode, talking from across the pond, and it's the morning time with him, but the afternoon with me, is Zach Eswine. Zach, welcome. Thank you so much, Clive. It's good to be able to spend this time with you. It's great through technology that um, we are able to do this, and you're in the States, and I'm here in, in Scotland, and uh, great that you're in and around the breakfast time, because this is called The Little Breakfast, so actually these questions <laughs> are going to feel a little bit more apt for you um, than mm-hmm. it will be for me in the afternoon. So we always start with asking a little bit about breakfast, uh, Zach, and what I want to ask you first of all is what would be your kind of average day-by-day breakfast? What would you go for? Well, we have uh, oatmeal because I'm over 50 and need to have that kind of thing going on. So we have uh, oatmeal with uh, banana or blueberry uh, in it with a little bit of brown sugar. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So that sounds, that sounds pretty healthy, yeah. I think oatmeal is similar to what we would call porridge. In the that's UK. right. I was going to say porridge is what, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah, so sometimes we get things lost in translation, so I have to sort of <laughs> do, an, do an interpretation of the tongues, as it were. Um, <laughs> so what would be your sort of dream breakfast? If you could have any breakfast and it was just like, you know, it doesn't really matter what you have, go for it, Zach. What are you, you going to have? <laughs> well, it's pretty ordinary. I like it, uh, We call it French toast. Okay. And, uh, French toast with uh, bacon. Okay, and uh, that I'm I'm enjoying that pretty good. French toast and bacon is a is a nice dream breakfast for me. And would you put a bit of syrup on that or anything? Yeah, I've got some syrup on there and uh, a little bit of butter. So um, you can see the contrast with the porridge uh, in terms of health. But uh, yeah, I do enjoy that. Or if I'm uh, if I'm traveling abroad, then I enjoy a chocolate croissant. Oh and yeah, so, nice. Yeah, yeah. With some coffee, um, a chocolate croissant. So I think in France they call that pain chocolat. I think to okay. be precise. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what would be the breakfast that would be a total nightmare for you? It'd be like no go. I really do not like that. Yeah, any kind of egg that's not scrambled. So we we called when I was growing up. We called that soupy eggs, and so yeah, I just had bad experiences there. So I'd I'd prefer not to eat a. Uh, Soupy egg. Soupy egg. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, you talk about eggs because I think I'm really into eggs, and I, I, it, hey. it has to be a little bit like you're either into eggs or you're not. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. sure there's too many people in the in between, but I don't know if that is something to ponder on. Maybe we can hear from listeners their views on that. Are you an egg person or not? That's right. So we're just going to be thinking a bit about. Um, ministry uh, you're you're a pastor and i just wanted to ask um for those that don't know you could you just tell us a bit about who you are your family your ministry that you're involved in background could you just give us a bit of a picture of that yeah well i uh my wife jessica and i uh, do life here in st louis missouri and our oldest is uh 25 and our Second child is 22, and our third child is 16, and then we have an 18-month-old, <laughs> and uh, we're, I've been here at Riverside Church as pastor for the last 12 years, 
and uh, also uh, um, teach at a local seminary just down the, just down the road here. And um, and uh, I'm a a person who has experienced a lot of brokenness in his life and and perpetrated uh, my own share of it and have have really needed the grace of God through Jesus mm. in my life. So I, I, I'm a person that uh, loves Jesus and I'm thankful for mm. who he is. So it's interesting that you, you said that at the end. I mean, I think we had a bit of an email exchange one time and you, you spoke about your late surprise of a baby and said, yeah, that's something along the lines of, yeah, that goes to prove I really am the imperfect pastor or something. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have lots of reasons for uh, for being able to say I'm the imperfect pastor. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what you'd say in the States, you know, it, there could be what you, people might perceive as a sort of cookie-cutter pastor, but whether one of those exists really in reality, I'm, I think you know and I know that's probably not reality. Um, but but you would be quick to put your hands up and say that, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of brokenness and challenges and troubles in your life, which, which to be fair, I think, Zach, is the same for all of us. I think maybe yes. we don't really maybe so readily share that. And maybe at times it's quite hard as a pastor, as an expression would say, you know, to put all your dirty laundry on, on the washing line, as it were, um, because I guess there needs to be wisdom in terms of how much vulnerability we have, how much we share how much we don't share, but then maybe the gravitas, do you think the gravitas maybe historically has been too far the other way that people maybe don't share or have any kind of vulnerability in the pulpit as it were? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think the apostle Paul is a fine uh, mentor for us in this way. And it was Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher um, who put me onto this, but Spurgeon was criticized so much uh, because he used the letter I. You know, he, he, he used the word I so much in his sermons. Hmm. And he was locally criticized for that. And his response to that was to appeal to the Apostle Paul, who, um, and sure enough, if you read through Paul's letters and you look for the word I, my, or we, yeah. uh, suddenly you realize how personal Paul is, and um, and the way Paul talks about his life, we we could think of it maybe as the clay jar and the treasure. Mm. You know that 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 picture there in a Corinthian letter where he says, "I have this treasure in clay jars." Uh, the clay jar talk is you know uh, something like this. When I came into Macedonia, my our bodies had no rest. We were um, afflicted without uh afraid within Mm. we experience conflict at every turn but god who comforts the downcast comforted us well the clay jar talk is there he is he's just saying he's wore out Mm. uh he's afraid he's full of conflict and affliction and he's downcast Mm. but the treasure talk is but god Mm. God comforts the downcast. And then he tells us how God comforted him through the, the visit with Titus. And Paul, Paul's doing that regularly, clay jar and treasure talk. And, 
I think perhaps that could be a help to us as we're trying to wrestle with that question. You know, some of us are all about the clay jar. We're uh, always talking about uh, the hardship in our life and uh, people, people can't seem to see the treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and others of us are always so much about the treasure that someone would suspect we've never suffered or struggled or needed a savior. Mm-hmm. And the apostle Paul seems to bring those two together in such a, a, a way that can be a helpful guide for us. Yeah, that's interesting because pick up on something you just said there, I guess like we often do as humans, we can end up going too much one way or the other. So if we, if it's all about the, the J uh, the, the jar of clay, as it were, or, or it's all about the treasure, then we give a kind of imbalanced view of reality there, don't we? Um, we do. I think it can become on the one side too stoic and then the other side maybe too therapeutic, you know, within mm-hmm. the culture that we're living in because I guess we're not, we're not void of the culture that we live in. We're affected by the culture we live in. And I wonder whether, you know, the generation of pastors that are around now who may be slightly more vulnerable about where they're at um we do still fight against sort of conditioning that's whether it's you know the american dream you've got to go and be a success in certain areas or whether it's about being strong and confident and being on it you know there are many parameters aren't there culturally that i think we are going against the flow if we take that position that you just suggested regarding paul Yes, uh, we'll be over if uh, we'll be overlooked as weak by by the proud, and so you know, for Paul, Paul experienced that. Uh, for him to say, you know, uh, I prayed three times, and God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted to. That that was a <laughs> that's a, a sabotaging thing to say in Corinth. Mm. Uh, who the Corinthians who prize polish and rhetorical smoothness and presentation. And here's Paul saying, uh, I prayed to God and he didn't answer the way I wanted. And, and then Paul just saying, uh, more than that, uh, I have a messenger from Satan in my life mm. and, uh, and I can't get rid of it. And more than that, uh, the Lord has told me, that his grace is sufficient. So you know what? I'm just going to tell you about all my weaknesses and then tell you about the grace of God. I'm going to boast all the more. Mm. And, um, and that's why people prefer to Apollos, the, the dear Christian brother, to Paul. Uh, you know, that whole thing going on there. And uh, so some, some folks will, will overlook us if we um, – put our weaknesses in the context of the grace of the Lord and um, other people will uh, overlook us more, more like the hurting. If the proud overlook us because they see us as weak and we should, we should be stronger than we are in ourselves. Then if we are more stoic than those who are hurting among us, the, they'll think that they can't, confide in us or that we wouldn't understand. And so it seems like just the, the, the biblical wisdom of this clay jar and treasure mm-hmm. uh, uh, sets in front of our proud hearts 
what it means to boast in nothing but the Lord mm. and then sets in front of the hurting what it means to receive the compassion of the Lord. And, well, sometimes we get it better and than we do on other days, but mm. that seems to be the, the biblical pattern set in front of us. So if there's a cultural perception of how somebody might act and behave and think, and if there's a perception of the pastor himself about how they act in terms of whether they're more stoic or more vulnerable, maybe there's a perception too of those within the church or society as to what a pastor might be or how they might act. So there's this sort of expectation, as it were, that that a pastor should be perfect. Yeah. Um, in reality, even the person who might su- subliminally suggest that knows that cannot be possible because, you know, we, we sin, everybody yeah. sins. But you wrote a book which I found incredibly interesting. Um, I re- the first book I read of yours was Sense in Jesus. And then uh, another book that you wrote was called The Imperfect Pastor, which as an imperfect pastor, I found quite appealing to read. So how did that book come about in terms of even writing a book called The Imperfect Pastor? What was the story there and what was the reason for that? Well, it started with maybe one way to to answer that question is uh, a mentor of mine who is a faithful pastor uh, midway through his ministry his ministry was flourishing, and he, he took his own life. And I was trying to grapple with that. And I was, during that time period, I was asked to speak to a group of uh, up-and-coming students in the ministry. And I was asked as a more seasoned pastor to give a word that would encourage future ministry leaders. Mm. And I said something. Um, I was trying to grapple with all of this. And uh, so I said these words, um, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards farted. <laughs> and I, I, there was mixed reviews on that. You know, some people w- were offended that I said that and other people laughed. And I really wasn't trying to be clever. I was trying to say something that should be an obvious fact. Mm. Um, Somebody, that, some people's noses were put out, we might say. Yes, <laughs> even though I'm saying just a factual thing, yeah. that the great man was a, was a man. And I was trying to say to those students that day that, um, that you're a human being. We, we have a story, um, you know, the little train who could, and it's about a little train who's trying to climb a, a, a mountain. And... He doesn't have the strength to do it in himself. So what he does is look to himself and speak to himself. And the little train says, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And then he overcomes the mountain. And, uh, and I just said, what if there are mountains you and I cannot overcome? Mm. No matter how much we tell ourselves we can. Now what? And... Um, and so that, that uh, kind of moment, and then another a strand as my own implosion in my life. My, my first marriage ended. Uh, my 
uh, my wife of uh, many years walked away from Jesus and walked away from the kids, the kids and I. And so as the kids, I was suddenly a single dad with primary care of my three children. Mm. And in the midst of a kind of celebrity view of things where I was locally, a lot of uh, people who once would have patted me on the back and shook my hand um, just disappeared. And uh, I think coming to terms with, am I, am I, if I'm not a ministry leader, if I'm not a pastor, if I'm not an author, if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm a broken man from uh, trying to care for three children who are grieving, mm-hmm. am I known to the Lord? Does, does he know our little uh, family? Does he care about us? And, and of course the answer is yes. Yes, he does. And, but I'm not sure I knew that, that, if, if I were to ever be a pastor again, could I do an old thing a new way mm. uh, in a more gospel-oriented way? So those, those are two stories of hardship uh, and pain, a mixture of pain coming from outside of us and a mixture of pain from our own doing and you know, in, in my situation, marriage-wise, of course, our presbytery found me, quote-unquote, innocent in the matter and things like this. But uh, I, we're, not, we're not truly innocent uh, in the sense of even, even in such a situation where someone is left mm-hmm. and abandoned. Eventually, as they work through their own pain of being abandoned, eventually they come to ask the question, what is it about me? What is it about my own contribution to these things? Mm. And uh, so coming to wrestle with those kinds of questions with a mentor of mine and, mm. and in my own life. And um, yeah, just trying to put words to a pastors are human beings who need a savior too. And hopefully we're speaking about our savior as those who need a savior and hopefully the comfort we're offering is because we've received comfort, whether, whether we have a formal role in ministry or, or not, uh, we're followers of Jesus. And, um, so that's, that's where that book was coming from. So how did you, how did you get through that time in your life? Because it sounds like pretty harrowing. Yeah, I cried a lot. I lost hair. I lost weight. I needed medication for a season. I needed a community of people who didn't quit on me, but um, entered uh, our wreckage. And um, hmm. and uh, the nearness of the Lord. You know, sometimes um, pastors will reach out and they'll ask me questions around this kind of thing. And, um, and I'll try without being trite to say, mm. you know, um, there are some blooms that you can only see in the desert. Yeah. And if you're not in the desert, you can't see them. 
There are some beauties that are in the desert. And in a strange way, don't be too quick to try to get out of that wilderness. Mm. Um, mm. I don't mean that tritely. Uh, I just mean that the Lord will not break a bruised reed. Mm-hmm. And there's some, some kind of nearness. There's a, there's a kind of intimacy mm. the Lord brings to the brokenhearted mm. who are humbled and crying out to him. And it's a sacred thing. And you look back and think, mm. the Lord was so near even in certain moments where I wondered where he was, mm. I can see now he was palpably near in a way that he is pleased not to yeah. share with me now. And uh, yeah, and so, um, and I think I think it's interesting that you know we, as I read through the swoop of scripture, we see quite a lot of traveling through valleys, don't we? And mm. we tend to sort of think that get up the mountain, get the panoramic view of what's going on, have that high. And it's almost as if sometimes I wonder, you know, whether we're a pastor or not, um, whether we're a follower of Jesus, we're all followers of Jesus, you know, when we're going through a valley, as it were, it's almost like there can be a, a kind of gut reaction, a quick reaction to get me out of the valley, you know, yes. I need to get out of the valley. And it seems to me the more I go on is – that we tend to learn a lot in the valley and yet it can be complex because of the scenario that you've just described, you know, that you obviously got pain, you had pain there, you had difficulties there, you needed space, you needed medication, you needed sort of help. Um, But in the midst of that, it seems that God is working. And I tend to think that maybe we think a little bit compartmentalized. So it's almost like, you know, well, maybe I'm going through this valley right now and once I get around that bend, I'll be back to where I know, you know. Um, And I've been thinking a lot about that with COVID-19, actually, thinking that Mm -hmm. I just wonder whether we're going through this valley um, and we don't know where the turns are next, you know. So it means that we've got to really trust the Lord, as we should do, but in a way that, I don't know about you, but it just feels quite different it feels like i haven't been here before you know i haven't haven't sensed what it's like to trust in this kind of way with this level of uncertainty in the air yes yes i i certainly feel that too uh with covid with uh, the economic fallout from that and here in the united states as an american i also racial injustice and yeah. the flare-up of that in a new way again in our city. and But also politically, yeah. you know, we, we have a, a president who's, we don't actually know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seeking whatever are your politics. And, um, and so there's a great deal of uncertainty, and it, I don't think we've been here before. And in our, I just saw... Uh, in New Zealand, our, our friends there, the, the, the prime minister, I believe, is um, delaying the election because of COVID. And mm. things like this all cause us to question where our trust is. Yeah. And, um, I've been meditating on Ecclesiastes 7.14. I think that's the verse where it just says, um, 
in good times celebrate in adversity reflect and Mm -hmm. in adversity reflect in adversity pause uh take stock slow down in order to sort things out Mm. and that isn't that isn't my natural reaction (laughs) is it you know when things get hard like you just said i just want to get on the move Mm. and uh but really we have to we have to slow down a bit quick to listen slow to speak slow to vent our anger Mm. and um take stock of where the solid ground is and and I wonder if coming out, you know, I, I trust we will come out of this season into whatever the new season will be. And I wonder if there are some things we were overlooking that are ordinary goods from the Lord mm. that in a fresh way we take hold of again. And maybe there are some things we were holding on to and they've been removed and it feels like a detox. We, we're kind of swirling about in our inner life mm. and we're, we're, we're not wanting to let go. But at the end of the day, it will have been for our good that we let go of those things because yeah. they really weren't uh, nourishing to our soul in the Lord. And, um, and so I, yeah. And, I, and yeah. I think that, and as you described that, I mean, so it, it, it's not remiss that we would not feel a little bit weary and slightly battered at times because mm-hmm. with a pruning and a refining, you don't tend to say, oh, this feels good, you know. Um, That's right. So, and we see that again, this is why scripture is so important, isn't it? We see that in the swoop of scripture that God works in his people's lives and where there's idolatry and where there's a wandering from him, where there's um, too much self-focus, you know, the, the, there is a change of rhythm and yeah. uh, it, to make his people think about the way that they're walking, you know, and to not just go off and wander. And I think I think that is sort of, that jars within a sort of post-enlightenment co- culture that mm. seems to say that we have an answer or empirical truth or two plus two adds four, and we'll find our way through this, and we'll get an answer. It's, there's a jarring there, isn't there, culturally, um, but historically and biblically, there would, it wouldn't be maybe as big a surprise, although it would be a surprise to face plagues and different yes. types of problems. But I think even within other, other parts of the world that are not so influenced by the Enlightenment, people might think, hmm, maybe we need to take stock here. Yes. Yeah, it's in, uh, interesting. There was a uh, there's a philosopher, an atheist philosopher named John Gray, hmm. and then I'm also thinking about a recent article in a in a, a magazine, a periodical called The Atlantic, and in both cases you have uh, an an atheist, and then in the Atlantic article you have a spiritual but not religious writer, and both of them are acknowledging that if you let go of of a a theistic worldview or if you let go of christianity in particular then you're also leaving yourself bereft of resources that secularism can't provide Mm. and so the the spiritual but the very thoughtful spiritual but not religious um person said that uh he said it's 
he's let go of Christianity, but now it's harder for him to find a friend um, because he's, he has no congregational life. It's harder for him to have a sense of community. It's harder for him to get through the anxiety that sinks into him on a Sunday afternoon Mm. as he thinks about the coming week. And then he says, and so he's going about the business of trying to rebuild Mm. something that can provide the resources that God has always provided. But since there is no God, now he has to find, he's, he still needs those resources. So where does he find them? And his uh, concluding paragraph was so honest and thoughtful. He, he said, uh, the pious are going to be surprised to notice that millions of us have left religion mm. only to recreate religion everywhere we go. <laughs> Yeah, so true, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very honest thing to say. And um, and so all of us are ref- maybe put in a position of reflecting. It, it's one thing to say there is a God when things are going well. It's also one thing to say there is no God hmm. when things are going well. Uh, and then when we encounter... The stuff of life that Ecclesiastes tells us in those seasons, there's a time to be born, a time to die, time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to dance, a time to mourn. When we encounter those, you know, seasons of life, we're, we're brought to reflect and think, okay, what, what am I turning to mm. to make meaning of this day and to make sense of how I go forward? And... Mm. Um, we, some of us will come to realize, okay, I've let go of God, but it's, it's the God provision that actually gave us things like love and not only love, but sacrificial love and not only sacrificial love, but love for an enemy, which means that I reach out even to people who disagree with me. Mm. And it means I not only tolerate them, but I give them the full resources of love, like patience and kindness. And, uh, and now I realize, oh, this, that, that, does, that view from Jesus doesn't come from enlightenment and rationalists. You know, it, doesn't, it didn't come from the Roman Empire. It, didn't, it, it doesn't come from our current political tribalisms. Mm. Um, so if we let go of Jesus... Uh, a lot of us are still trying to hold on mm. to things that really come from Jesus. And uh, it puts us in a, a puzzle, a mm. conundrum. And maybe the conundrum is okay because we'll reflect and we'll look again, take stock uh, of our life with the Lord. Mm, absolutely. You, in, in a sort of similar way, in, in, in an honest kind of way, you're not sort of suggesting because you're a Christian and because you're a pastor, you've got it all together by no means. And and in fact, what you do in your book really helpfully is you identify sort of three temptations for a pastor um, to be a certain way. And and the the three things that I want to pull out are that, A, you speak about to be a pastor, to be everywhere for all kind of person, to be a fix-it-all or to be a know-it-all. And can you sort of briefly explain those areas and those sort of challenges that you wrote about in the book in terms of being a, a pastor or an imperfect pastor? Yeah, I are trying to find language for how our our Western cultures 
um, pressure us to do large things famously as fast as we can. And in contrast, biblically speaking, most things in life require small, mostly overlooked graces over a long period of time. Uh, lasting friendship, marriage, parenting, uh, learning the books of a Bible, getting through sickness, being able to forgive someone who's profoundly sinned against us. All these things take, are small, mostly overlooked graces over a long period of time. And trying to capture this uh, lying narrative, this, this, this narrative that pressures us to do large things as fast as we can and in a famous way. And so looking back at the garden in the Bible and seeing the, the snake's whispers to Adam and Eve and seeing there this uh, temptation to um, be everywhere at once, to know everything and to, to fix everything. Mm. And when you think about being everywhere at once, um, people love it when a pastor is that way because it means that as a people, uh, they never have to deal with discomfort mm. because the pastor is always there. And if they have to experience a bit of discomfort and they have to wait on the pastor, they're not sure what to do. Uh, or consider a pastor who knows it all uh, or pre pretends to be. Then people love it that way and applaud it because we never have to do a day without an answer. Mm. We never have to experience an unanswered moment in which we have to trust what we can't see. And um, being able to fix everything, uh, that means not only am I never have to, to be without someone's immediate presence, but I, I don't have to go through difficulty. I, I don't have to end a day unfixed. Everything is always tidied up for me. And what you, you can hear it, you know, as you think about that, you realize a couple of problems here. Number one, uh, if I never have to go without someone's immediate presence, uh, and I never have to go through unfixed problems, and I never have to go through a day without an answer, I don't have to trust. I, I don't have to wait mm -hmm. upon God. I, I'm living a situation the Bible doesn't seem to, to assume or talk about. Uh, but the other problem is this. To, to be everywhere at once is called uh, omnipresence. Mm. And to know everything is called omniscience. <laughs> and to be able to fix everything is called omnipotence. And what we're doing is describing the character of God. And theologians would call these the the incommunicable attributes of God. Mm. And what we realize is that in trying to be everywhere at once, know everything and fix everything so that we can do a large famous thing fast for God, we're actually back in the garden trying to be like God. And of course, that's why people want us to be God for them. Mm. And of course, we want the ministry to be God for us because it, it delivers us from having to be a, a, a vulnerable, dependent creature who's like a child before the Father, and, uh, or like a sheep needing a good shepherd. And um, we, those positions are difficult. We, we want out of that. Mm. Uh, 
And so that's what I'm trying to get at there. So I want to say, and I would need you to say it to me, we would say something like this. Uh, You don't have to repent because you don't know everything. Only God can know everything. You have to repent because you've been trying to know everything. Mm -hmm. You don't have to repent because you can't fix everything. You have to repent because you've been acting like you can't. Or you don't have to repent because you can't be everywhere at once. You have to repent because you've been trying to be everywhere at once. And uh, only the Lord can do this. So when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross and rose from the grave, he did so because uh, we have tried to be like God, knowing everything, being everywhere at once, fixing everything for people, doing only what God can do. Now, I'm saying that for those of us who are earnest, hardworking pastors and ministry leaders. There's a certain kind of person who's been so wounded in their life or uh, on the flip side has an arrogance inside that we've already grown callous to people. And so if we're in that situation, such a person can use what I just said to justify not pursuing people and not trying to care for people. That would be a grave mistake. Mm. Uh, because we're not God, we're still under shepherds. And the good shepherds called us to follow him into people's lives. Mm. But I'm assuming people, uh, I'm not talking to restaholics. I'm talking to those of us (laughs) prone to workaholic, uh, trying to do what only God can do. I think think that's so true. And I think at the same time, it can also be about perception that the pastor has of himself, but also maybe the perception of uh, people in the church that they have of a pastor. You know, I think, I think it actually, as you were saying, that it could work both ways because expectation can be put on the pastor himself, but expectation can be put on the pastor from others. And I think regarding um, those points that we just discussed there, you know, it's really important that, that there is a kind of an awareness of that, I think, from both sides, isn't it, as it were? Yes, yeah, with without care, um, as a as a pastor, I can or a leader in ministry, I can leverage the congregation rather than love them, and so I can I can use them for my own platform, as as it were. I I can say I'm going to mobilize them for some type of gospel mission, as if tending their souls isn't part of the gospel mission. And, um, and on the flip side, uh, congregants can consume pastors rather than love them as human beings. And so without realizing, I, I don't even mean this curmudgeonly, mm. uh, there's just a consumerism that's in the air. We've, many of us have grown up with it. Mm. And so, uh, just like I, we might order a half-calf latte with soy milk, you know, or something like this, or what, whatever our preferred thing is, without realizing it, we can bring that to our pastor. And, um, and if he doesn't, as if he's a barista, uh, <laughs> rather than a shepherd, and if he doesn't give us the order just the way we wanted it, we can think that he's a poor pastor, and the pastor can think that of himself too, and uh, and and what's happened here is that both of us are functioning 
within the mental map of consumerism, the, the story about the world that we are consumers having our preferences met and, and, and not even realize that subtly, subtly, we're not even talking about love at all. Mm. It's the sum of the law, but it's nowhere in the conversation now. And uh, bringing us back to that question, what does it mean to love my congregation rather than leverage them? What does it mean to love my pastor as a human being rather than consume him? Uh, we just need lots of help in that way. Mm. And I think one thing that's, that's helping that in what we might say is a slightly kind of massive shift in rhythm is as we've faced COVID-19, as we've been in various states of lockdown, and not being able to meet, well, certainly in the UK and certainly in, in our area of the UK in Edinburgh, we're not meeting to have services. It's it certainly made me aware of those potential consumeristic elements. You know, is Sunday the event where we go to consume worship and a sermon? Is it where we go to consume friendships? Um, is it a place that we go to worship and are trained and equipped and sent out to love one another and share the goodness of the gospel with those who don't know Christ wherever we are. And, and I think there's, there's a shift happening here regarding what we think it is to be a disciple of Jesus and what it is to, to know Jesus. You know, I mean, we, are we consumers of Jesus in the same way? Yes. Yeah, that's that's uh, that is right. I think you're right. And uh, when when Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest," he's saying that in the midst of the Roman Empire, and he has no power, you know, no no economic power, no political power, uh, no ecclesiastical power. And yet he's boldly saying to those who have been weighed down and heavy laden by all those kinds of powers and the guilt and the shame in their own life and the cares that they have. And he's, he's saying, you know, uh, these circumstances aren't going to change. You're still going to live out following me in the Roman Empire. But uh, I have a kind of rest for your restless soul that no one can provide. Come learn from me you know and mm. this uh and and some of us maybe for the first time in our life some of the people we know and it's a fresh question for our own so we might say for the first time in our life in this covid change of rhythm have i actually is it jesus i've been following <laughs> mm. is he the one i've been seeking to learn from and orient my life around because on the one hand, for Jesus to say, come to me, that isn't new. Mm. Everything is vying for our attention. That's why we're scrolling so much on our phones. That's why there's clickbait. Everybody's saying, come to me. Mm. Um, so that, that isn't new. What's new is that Jesus is saying, come to me all. So there's no tribalism there. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you can come. Uh, and I will give you rest and finding rest for our restless soul. Uh, you know, even when we've watched 
uh, a show. We finally found a show to watch on Netflix or whatever <laughs> our streaming app is. We finally found a good one. And then when it's over, what do we feel? Mm. We feel sad. Yeah. <laughs> we have that moment of sadness. Transient. Yeah. yeah. And we feel again um, this, this reality that the, the, even the best show that said come to me um, when I'm finished with it. And you're like, when's still... next season going to happen? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what do I do in the meantime? The show itself, even for all of its goodness, I'm assuming the best possible show provided by an, a good story and all that, it still can't do what our souls need. And well, maybe there's a, there's a parallel there like with the valley that I was talking about earlier. You know, it's like, so if the Netflix season, we're in it, and then it's ended, we're like, get me to the next season, is get me to the next mountain, and we're in the valley, yeah. you want to get back up to the mountain, you know? And it's, That's right. And I think part of that, you know, sometimes, um, well, certainly when my kids are growing up, they're getting older now, and, you know, it's just like, I, they'd say, I'm bored, and I'd say, well, that's great, because if you're bored, then you're going to have to, get creative you're gonna have to think about stuff you know whereas if we're just entertaining people all the time if it's all just busy if it's all just here's a season here's the next season there's no waiting i think what what's also paramount in this season that we're in is is the season of waiting standing in queues waiting longer for your food you know um i'm not the best at the world in waiting but it's a stark reminder that actually there's a big kind of biblical metaphor there isn't there yeah, there really is. It's a, the fruit of the spirit of patience. And well, I, I, we're just learning different level, different areas of discipleship in our life, different areas of our life that mm. we didn't know we needed. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So you've spoken quite openly about the um, challenges that you've had in your life. You've written about that and folks can read about that particularly in Imperfect Pastor, um, just sort of going to merge two questions together here, Zach, is, you know, firstly, what part A, if you like, is what's one of the main things that you've learned in your time uh, over the years of being a pastor? And secondly, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily related, but secondly, because of the realism that you've written about, you've also written about challenges with depression. Um, you've written a book called... But is it Spurgeon Sorrows? Yes. Um, and, you know, I suppose talking about how pastors are, are not immune from mental health issues and getting depressed and serving in ministry, do you, <laughs> is it possible to merge the answers to that question or am I presuming? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's, those are great questions. <laughs> the, the first thought, what have I learned over the years? I think when I first answer this, it just sounds, I don't know what it sounds like, but what I've learned over the years as a pastor, I would say is I'm a human being and I can't change the world. Yeah. That's a good answer. That, that could sound defeating. Um, mm. but, but there are certain inconsolable things. Like the, Jesus said, the, the poor you will always have with you. Mm. And... Um, death we will have until it is overcome. And even if I have faith of a mustard seed that can move a mountain, the poor you will always have with you. Mm. And death is coming. And there are certain things that I can't change and you can't either. And it's the, 
if we look at all the heroes of the faith um, and their greatest sermons, their, their greatest sacrificial acts of love and, and all those we've never even heard of, and yet the world is still what it is, I, I, can't, um, I can't change the world, mm. but I can uh, follow the Lord mm. into the lives of people that the Lord is pursuing as their good shepherd and see him change lives. Mm. And, and uh, as a human being, uh, we live and we die. Um, our life is but a breath. Uh, the, if you turn out to be the greatest preacher in your generation, uh, you still might have Alzheimer's and forget all of it. And uh, we uh, we get to be nobly human as the creatures God created us to be, the way we were meant to be in Eden, and the way He'll restore and recover in the new kingdom. Mm. And this the idea that we could somehow be the one unique person in our generation, the celebrity to change this or that. Uh, uh, is a fool's errand and striving after wind. But the noble calling that we could give our lives out of love for Jesus and experience the provision of the one who created us and knows us by name, and we could follow him uh, in his world and know that death won't have the last word and we'll get to see him for all our lives. And we'll get to know each other. That's, a, that's an incredible opportunity mm. and provision and purpose. And so we don't stop having ambition to do great things. Mm. We just want to make sure we're defining greatness the way Jesus does. Mm. And, and we get then to learn a different kind of blessedness. Poor in spirit, meek, mm. you know. And... Um, and we get to know people that are known by God and loved by him, cherished by him. And we get to laugh and we get to cry and we get to enjoy good food. And we get to do what Ecclesiastes says, which is to, there's nothing better than to enjoy your lot. Mm. And um, that, that passage doesn't say unless you're a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Um, that that goes a long way with the depression question and anxiety question because um, our depression and anxiety is increased when we think we're supposed to have been something we're not. Mm. And when we are constantly trying to uh, put our brand together mm. and having to live up to the story we're telling on social media and in our life, uh, uh, it only increases that sense of sadness that won't go away. And yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you mentioned sadness. I mean, one, one, one quote from that book is you said, it's an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. Yes. What does that mean? Well, there can be an idea within Christianity that uh, really is a stoic idea um, or a health and wealth gospel idea that if you have faith, you ought not be troubled or be sad. 
um, the, of course, the Lord Jesus is identified by Isaiah as the man of sorrows. Hmm. And of course, we Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that in the days of his life on earth, Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. And of course, we see the Garden of Gethsemane hmm. where the Lord is overwhelmed with grief. And we hear him crying out like a mother hen for her chicks, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you. Hmm. And when he sees Lazarus, dead in the tomb, even though he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's the Lord anguished in his spirit. And, and people see him. He publicly weeps. And, and so uh, to be sad about sad things is to get honest about the fallen world, that there are glorious things God created, where, and they've been marred. They've been wrecked. And this is why the person in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is crying out, meaningless, meaningless. He's, he's looking at life under the sun in light of what it was created to be. Mm-hmm. And now he's looking at it in light of what it's become. And so we lament and we cry out and all those psalms that are given us this language from God. And so being sad about sad things... Um, someone once said that every lament is a love song. Mm. If that's true, you know, to be sad about sad things is to, uh, is to love what the things were created to be, um, to love the God who created them, and to realize what Paul said in Romans 8, all creation groans. Mm. We ache because things aren't yet what they are meant to be. And so mm. that's the appropriate response for that kind of thing is, is uh, tears. But we don't cry as those without hope, do we? Yeah, no, 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 exactly. But I, th- I think what you're saying there, as I hear you answer that, it does seem a bit multi-layered because on the one hand, it's a little bit like a cultural message of, you know, be happy, um, be always upbeat, as it were, you know, and then as evangelical Christians, particularly maybe there isn't as much of an understanding or space for lament. So even on a very basic level, just being honest, you know, if I felt sad about something or sorrowful, I'd be like, okay, that's gone on for three days now. Let's move on, you know? Um, It's almost like where is the space within Western culture particularly, within Western Christianity, to allow one another to be sad and sorrowful. You speak about Jesus being the man of sorrows. You know, I don't know whether we readily align ourselves to that. So I'm not saying we should go around constantly being sad, constantly being sorrowful. But I, think, I wonder whether it's almost the opposite of that, you know, when we don't allow space for lament or we don't even know what lament looks like in our culture. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's the, you know, in the wisdom literature, it's the naive, it's really naivete that robs people of their tears. It wants to keep the vibe light and the mood bright and um, has trouble with uh, the sorrowing person. And uh, faith, wisdom, uh, recognize, we, we weep with those who weep. That's a Christian response. And mm. the temptation of the Christian is to either 
try to get the weeping person to rejoice or to correct, admonish, teach, instruct the weeping. And we struggle to actually obey the scripture Mm. that says to weep with the one who weeps and uh, rejoice with the one who rejoices. Mm. And so it's a, for various cultural and personal temperamental reasons, a lot of us need big doses of grace here to learn this area of following Jesus. Mm. And I, th- I think as, you know, certainly as pastors, it's something that we need to be aware of in terms of, you're absolutely right, you know, weeping with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and I think go against the grain of the the culture that says quickly move on or you know you're feeling a bit sad i'll tell you what you know there's a great comedy on um netflix you know check out season two it's better than season one you know we want to kind of remedy those those feelings um and then actually move on quickly don't we yes yeah we do but i think i think um bringing this to a close i think that's maybe where scripture is helpful when we look to the psalms when we look to as you mentioned ecclesiastes um for such times as this so what would not in a kind of grandiose way i don't want to load you with like you know zach eswine says this kind of thing but what would at this time that we're in you know what have you been learning and what could you share with others that might be helpful do you think we've we've touched on a couple of things already, but is there anything else that you maybe wanted to share? Well, that Proverbs three: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Hmm. That's a that's an antiquated story um, that the Lord exists, and we lean on the Lord. Hmm rather than our own understanding of things that there's a another character when you're watching or listening to the news the news will talk to you as if this is a one-story universe as if there is no god as if um if if this or that happens this or that sickness this or that political party this or that this or that And then they'll tell you how afraid you should be mm. and they'll tell you how bad things are going to be if we don't do this or that. And in all of that conversation, it inspires fear. And, um, bec- and it's because there is no God mm. in the story that the news is telling. And I mean, even the most factual news, even the most earnest, um, uh, skilled um, news tellers mm. uh, uh, still... Uh, communicate a world in which the only characters are us Mm. and then you encounter something like proverbs 3 and you're reminded there's a whole other character in this story that just isn't talked about Mm. and his his name is the lord Mm. he's the one who created all things he's the one who governs the nations and when we look out and see all that we can see which is our own understanding we are to say this is not the only true thing. Uh, this is not the whole truth about the situation. Mm. Beyond my understanding, there is also the Lord who has a point of view. Mm. And I'm to lean into life as if that's true. And we, we need help that way mm. uh, with each other. 
because um, there's an atmosphere of, of uh, fear and um, conflict. Mm. And without realizing it, we get caught up in it. And of course we're afraid and full of conflict if there is no God, mm. if, the, if, we're, if there is no center, mm. if, there is, if the one through whom all things were created isn't holding all things seen and unseen together, then of course it feels like we're free falling. But if we are in God's world and we are created by God and we do have a future and a hope, then we have a, pre- we have a present. And this is our opportunity to learn of Christ and to follow him in a, a season we did not ask for, but a season that's no surprise to him. And he has things for us to do. And, uh, and there may be an opportunity, not only for our own apprehension of the gospel in a new, deep, and profounding way, but an opportunity with people we've long prayed for mm. and long cared about, uh, ways to serve, ways to wait upon the Lord, that it's been the privilege of Christians in generations past to rise to the occasion and maybe this will be a moment for our generation. Hmm. And, and, and you recognize what I'm saying. To rise to the occasion means to rise to small moments of local trust in the Lord. Hmm. For the neighborhood that we're in and the people that we know. And crying out to the Lord, following him for their sake. Hmm. That they too might know him. And... Uh, that people might encounter him mm. because we don't react in kind, but we are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to vent anger, waiting upon a savior and inviting others to do the same. Mm. Well, that's really, really challenging and inspiring. And I think, you know, we, we've obviously got a lot to reflect on in the time that we've um, spoken. So really appreciate the time that you've given uh this morning for you and this afternoon for me because that's the kind of world we live in <laughs> and um well i guess it's always been that way but we're a little bit more aware through technology of such time differences um so are you working or writing anything new at the moment or just doing the local yeah, at the, yeah at the moment slowly writing on wisdom okay and so um, you can hear that reflected probably in some of the things I'm sharing, but Ecclesiastes. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I've written about Ecclesiastes. I've written a book on Ecclesiastes, and um, and I am uh, thinking about just the kind of stuff we're talking about and how how wisdom and the wisdom literature and Jesus as not only our prophet and priest and king, but as mm. our sage, our our wisdom, as Paul mm. says. We, how this could um, reinform, you know, continue to recreate how yeah. we go through a day. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, people can get uh, more information about the books that you've written. Um, do you have a website or not? I do. Um, it's in transition right now, but it's still viewable. Yeah. And if you go to zacswine.com or thepastorsabbey.com. Okay. And also people can probably buy 
the books on the usual platforms, online yes. shops. Um, and also, um, if people want to get in touch, if you've got any comments or questions about what Zach's been talking about, then please get in touch with us. We're on different platforms on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We'd love to see a bit of interaction with what's going on. Maybe you agree or disagree, or maybe you've been challenged in a good way um, or challenged in a slightly painful way, uh, realising um, our imperfections once again <laughs> so uh, thanks so much and uh, it's been great to chat with you and we will be in touch um, about future episodes that are coming up uh, through those social media platforms as well thanks for your time Zach thanks so much Clive